Hey folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from the earlier years of the podcast. This week, it's the best of true crime stories, number one. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Ed Gavigan, before that, from the late Jim Padar, and we're going to start things out with the one and only Marjorie Winther. Now, I'm sure you guessed from the title of the episode, from all these stories being about true crime, that all three of these stories have either physical violence or sexual violations involved. So, heads up about that. Let's start out with Marjorie Winther with a story we call My Own Life. Hello. Hello. Is this is this working? Yes. Okay. So I was looking around my room this morning and it was like filled with empty beer bottles and condom wrappers. And I thought this is not how I expected to spend my 58th year. Because I used to be married. I was married for 30 years and I was like a companionable marriage. Like my husband, Austin, he was one of those guys with the a button-down shirt with a mechanical pencil, and he was a teacher, and he was a, actually a great teacher, and later a professor, and he thought very carefully about American education, and he was committed to learning, and I loved that about him. I loved that, and from the eyebrows up, we had a, a great marriage. <laughs> <laughs> but there was no passion, and there was, there was no sex for years, and, and I called him out, like, we never have sex, and, and, and he said, very matter of fact, he was, he was a matter of, he said, he said, you know, I'm not attracted to you. I love you, but you're fat and, and I don't, I'm not attracted to you. And, and it hurt, but not as much as you might think because I really wasn't that attracted to him because he's skinny. <laughs> so I went along, you know, I went along. I was happy enough. You know, like, like we never fought. Like we maybe we didn't like roll around like the Burt Lancaster in From Here to Eternity, but that's just the movies. You know, you don't always get everything. I, I made that trade-off that people make where you give up the idea of ever having fun again and in return you get security and a Toyota Prius. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have to walk through the world alone. And I would still be in that marriage, except one day, two years ago, I was at work and the phone rang and it was my son. He said, uh, Mom, Dad got arrested. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, like the FBI's here. <laughs> like, they were like pounding on the door, woke me up. <laughs> and I'm like, what, 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 what? He goes, I guess like, here's his airport, like trying to have sex with like some girl or something. I was like, oh my God, daddy, what, daddy? Daddy was, I was like, oh my God, like I gotta, I gotta go home, I gotta go home, my kid is home, I gotta go home, like I panicked, I left work, I, I, I flew home and there were these like seven FBI agents in my house, like and they were wearing like these khaki pants and bulletproof vests and they locked my puppy, I had a puppy, they locked him in the yard. <laughs> They're like, safety, safety, I'm like, like you're the FBI, like you, like, chase down serial killers. Like, he's a 
but they sat me down. <laughs> I said, ma'am, did you, did you know your husband was at the airport? No, I didn't. I didn't know. I, did you know that, you know, we've been, you know, he's been corresponding with a, with a woman and her 13-year-old daughter, and may, he sent them a plane ticket. He's been making arrangements for them to come to Philadelphia for sex. And did you, did you know that? No, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew he was in his, his room all the time, like on the internet, but I thought like he was just looking at porn like a normal man. <laughs> so I didn't know any of this. And, and I was just like, and, and then they, they said, tell me like all that, you gotta call this person, do this and go down there. And you know, you gotta, there's all this like, you know, you gotta go to court, there's hearings, you gotta go to lawyer. There's all this like whole like legal process you know, that, I, that I had to learn about. You know, like if you've heard the expression like, don't make a federal case of it. It's, that's what I was <laughs> So they left. My son drove me to the airport to get the car. And, and I was actually, like, it's funny, the little things that piss you off. Like, you'd think it would be the big things, but it's like, I got to pay for the fucking car at the airport, like, short-term parking. Like, what was he thinking? Like, you know, like, <laughs> It's the little things. It's just, I don't know. And, and I was so worried about my son. It's like, like how are you? Paul, your dad, like, how are you? He goes, Mom, my son is very calm. Mom, I'm not going to form an opinion until I've talked to Dad. We just have one side of the story. And that sounded like a plan. Like, I should talk to him. Like, because like, this just didn't seem like the guy I knew. You know, this isn't something he would do, and, and, and so I was just like in this zombie state, like I wasn't crying or freaking out, and you know, I was just like, like I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, Jody came over and tried to make me eat a sandwich, I couldn't, you know, it was just like, like I just, I just couldn't function, but there was all this stuff you had to do, you know, you have to get a lawyer, you have to go down, you have to do all this stuff, and I said, I need to talk to him, I need to talk to him, you can't just like, waltz into the prison. Like, like there's a process, there's like background checks. It took like, I don't know, weeks and weeks before I could go see him. And finally, like, I was cleared to go visit him and, and I went down there and that's a whole thing. Like, any of you guys ever gone to the prison? Like, you can't just like, hey, hi. You know, it's, it's like, there's, there's all these rules and, and I was watching, like you're in the waiting room and they kept turning people away. Like, if their pants were too tight, you can't get in or, you know, this, no, this uh, wouldn't. <laughs> And you know, little kids are getting turned away. I mean, it was like, it's like there's all these rules and then, and then you have to go through the metal detector. It's the most sensitive metal. The, the people in the waiting room, they used to call it the stopper. You know, because you go, beep, and it's like, what? You know, like I'm taking off my, you know, and it just kept beeping. And I was like, why is this beeping? Why? Is, and, and there were like, fortunately, like some mafia wives in the waiting room. They're like, honey, are you wearing an underwire? And I was like, yeah, take off your bra. I'm like, Okay. You know, which is not a good look for me, but you know, but I did. <laughs> I got in, I got in to talk to Austin and, and, and you're sitting, it's not like, it doesn't have the glass, it's like the moon, no, it's like you're, it's rows of plastic chairs and you sit on one side and they said that there's low, low tables because it has to be low because they don't want people like diddling each other, I guess, under the table, which we weren't gonna do because <laughs> why start now, you know? <laughs> but he came out and he, and he said, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy. And um, he said, I wanna, I wanna make it up to you. I, I wanna 
make amends and how how are you gonna do that? Like like how do you make amends to your wife that you were trying to have sex with a 13-year-old? Like what are you gonna do? Fuck an old lady and split the difference? <laughs> He, and that wasn't his plan. He had a plan. He, he said, you know, for my cell, I, I can see these, like, double-decker buses go, going by. I want to I wanna take you on a double-decker bus ride. <laughs> and that will be even. You know, it's like, oh. You know, but, but I didn't hate him yet. It's just because it, I couldn't meld the, you know, this is this guy, this teacher, this brilliant scholar, and this is this... You know, like I couldn't, like I couldn't get mad at him because it didn't work. It didn't, it didn't fit. I was just like walking around in this kind of zombie state. And and and, and he told me, he said to me, Margie, I, I know you're not going to believe me, but I wasn't going to go through with it. It was just a fantasy, and it got, you know, out of control. I mean, I'm looking at a 10-year prison term for having a fantasy, like he's the victim, you know, and. And I believed him because I was used to believing him. I was just in the habit of believing him. But there were little details that were like, and I was like, wait a minute, the, the FBI, they, you have $400 in your pocket. And he goes, um, I was going to take them to lunch. <laughs> and it's just a lot of things that didn't make sense. Like, like I, but it took me a while to kind of figure out that he was lying, you know, like, like, I used to take the bus to work because I'm an asshole, I guess. I don't know, like, I let, he was, he was home, but I didn't, I wanted him to have the car, so I would take the bus, and then, and then he would pick me up at the train. Well, the day he got arrested, he had emailed me that morning and said, I'm not going to be able to pick you up at the train. And, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, yeah, you're having this illicit affair. You can't be done by 547, you know, and it... it <laughs> It just finally hit me that like he didn't care about me. He didn't have my back. And, and I, I still couldn't really fall apart. And I was just kind of, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping, I was just worrying all the time. You know, I was just worrying what's gonna happen. I was just worried and, and one of my neighbors came over, and this like, fits with your story, Brady, because one of my neighbors came over and, and she was the wife of the pastor of the Baptist church around the corner from me and, and she invited me to come to church with her. And I said, okay, I'll go. And, and I went to church, if you've ever been to a Baptist church, it's, it's like a lot of rhythm, you know, and, 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 there, and the sermon, and, and, and it got to the point, I hadn't even cried yet, but it got to the point in the sermon where the preacher said, lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I finally cried. And I was immediately like embraced by women in fabulous hats. <laughs> it felt so good to cry that I decided to go to a blues bar that night and just like purge, just purge my pain. But it, it didn't work out, I, like, cause I went, the bar I went to was in Chestnut Hill. I didn't have to say anything else, y'all know. Like, <laughs> so like the musicians, like it never like really been through anything. So. <laughs> 
So it was like, uh, I'll just give a demo. It was like, um, you know, good, join me. I was mildly inconvenienced, you know. It was like... <laughs> Pretending I was Janis Joplin, and I was like, like shooting back like Southern cover, and like I started singing like louder than the band, like Joplin songs. Like I was gonna lay my head on a lonely railroad line, and I was just like, and I was just singing, and and, and the manners like Miss, you know, you you can't do that, and I was like, well then give me something I can wallow in, and and, and he's like, you're gonna either have to shut up or you're gonna have to leave, so I left. And, and I was sitting on the curb outside the bar, and I thought, this is like my, my lowest point ever. I've been thrown out of a blues bar for being too sad. <laughs> but I knew what I had to do. I had to put my life together, and I thought, I've been looking at this as the day my life fell apart. Well, now I was looking at it as my second chance, you know? And I was thinking, it's not enough to be happy enough. And I was putting that thought into the universe. And I know there are people who think if you put a vision into the universe, the universe will respond and give you a pony. <laughs> think that like I'm like Jewish so I think like if you put uh, your vision into the universe you are daring the universe to fuck with you <laughs> all the Jews clap yeah. <laughs> that's Yiddish for like go away evil eye we say it a lot you don't find like you know you just can't take anything for granted it's a dangerous Cosmos and, and, and I'm, but I'm thinking like, it's not enough to be happy enough. I want more, I want lots and lots and lots of life. And, and I was a little afraid, you know, that the universe would think I was being greedy. But then I remembered like my grandmother used to tell me, she was in charge of my religious education. And I mean, I found out later she was just making shit up. But, <laughs> But what she told me when I was little, she was like, Mashallah, when you die, you will have to answer to God for every pleasure that you declined. Yeah, like her vision of God, like God was like a hostess. It was like, I made it all for you. Seven days I worked, you know, try it. Right, so I wasn't being greedy, I was being worshipful. And, and I thought what I want, I know what I want. I want lots of stories, and I want lots of dancing, and I want lots of men. And it's not that I think the universe owes me these things, but I owe myself the guts to go after it. So, dancing, I, I joined um, a soul dancing class which is like so great. Like I learned like the Freetown strut and the, the Cupid shuffle. But you know, I mean, it was a little, it was, I mean, I was the only white person in the class. So it was like a little weird, you know, I mean, everybody was nice, but it's like, it's, you know, it's like, I can't, you know, like, you know, push it, push it good, you know. <laughs> I, 
I'm white. Now you gotta push it well. <laughs> and I had the guts to come to First Person Arts and tell a story, and the universe gave me Karina and, and, and Kevin and thank you universe, like, please don't fuck with me. And, <laughs> and then I thought, man, oh, that's gonna be hard, you know, because like, I know I'm not like all that. But apparently I am all this. <laughs> and yeah, and like Kevin said, <laughs> I mean, to quote Kevin Allison, there's men who like fat, hairy people. And, <laughs> and I want to make out with all of them. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, so, so where am I? So, so I put it in the universe. I want, I want some men in my life. And if you're going to fuck with me, do it the good way. And, <laughs> and as you already know, um, my bedroom's filled with beer bottles and empty condom rappers, I mean, I mean, I just put the thought out, universe, you know, if you are, if you, you know, if, if you can send me, like, a nice, single, Jewish lawyer, habeas corpus. <laughs> 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 and I come to understand that I used to look at that as the, night, the day that Austin was arrested, I used to look at that as the day my life fell apart, like the character in an Oprah book club selection. But I've come to look at it as the day my life became my own. Thank you. It was summer of 1975. I was working homicide with my regular partner, Mike, out of the Maxwell Street Station. The call was a man stabbed in the play lot at the Henry Horner Project on west side of Chicago. We were literally right there. All we had to do was pull our squad to the curb and get out. Obviously, we were the first officers on the scene. We were dressed as what I call summer homicide. It's short sleeve, dress shirt with a tie, light trousers for the summertime. We trotted towards the play lot and instinctively we slowed because there was a crowd there, like you would expect, but they were strangely quiet. One of those situations that makes a cop's hair stand up on the back of his neck. Something was going on here out of the ordinary. We unstamped our holsters, put our hands on our snub-nosed revolvers, and slowed down. As we approached the crowd, they cleared a path for us, and we walked in. Now, this was not a nice place to be, because a couple months before, a Chicago police officer had been shot and killed by a sniper from these very buildings. But in the middle of this crowd lay a young, muscular, black male on his back, who had been stabbed in the right side of his neck, the carotid artery to be specific. 
Every time his heart beat, he would send a stream about 10 or 15 feet out. And that's what the crowd was watching. And every once in a while, he would writhe a little bit or move, and the stream would change a little bit direction, and the crowd would murmur and step back. My partner and I had the same instantaneous reaction. Oh, shit. <laughs> now, we had watched people bleed out in our homicide careers and our police careers from massive injuries, massive head injuries, and there was nothing you could do except pretty much watch them bleed out. But this was different because there was a point. There was a specific point of where the blood was coming from. And Mike and I recognized that. Mike said, I'll get a compress. In our squad, we carried a four-inch compress. We had no radio because in those days, the radios were firmly affixed to the dashboard of the car. As he sped off, and I said, you know, and call an ambulance. I watched, and I kind of moved back and forth, and uh, I managed to get into this kid's neck and put my hand right on that spot. I didn't get any direct hit. I could feel his pulse, but the bleeding stopped. So I just held my fingers there. It was going to be one of the most bizarre experiences of my entire police career. As I knelt there alongside of him, he was wide-eyed, conscious, looking at me. The only way I could describe the expression on his face is what I would call primal fear. I could hear the sirens wailing in the background. I knew help was on the way. It seemed like an inf infinite amount of time. I know it was in reality probably only a minute, a minute and a half. Suddenly through the crowd came the uniform officers from the 12th district, my partner, and two paramedics. They stopped, and their reaction was similar. Oh, shit. They looked at the streams that had stained the concrete, and they said, is that where your fingers are now? I says, yeah. She says, don't move your fingers. Okay, I wasn't planning on it. <laughs> so they start unpacking their bag of magic, I thought. I didn't know what they were going to do, but their magic turned out to be yards and yards of ace bandages wrapped around my hand and his neck. And they kept yelling at me, you know, flatten your hand out, keep your fingers or pressure, pressure, maintain pressure. I'm thinking, that's, that's what I'm doing, yeah. <laughs> I says, uh, and your plan is? And he says, you're going with us. Okay. So the other paramedic went back to the ambulance. He comes back with a stretcher. And in a few minutes, we were gliding back to the ambulance. We get to the ambulance, it's obvious that I am bandaged into him in the wrong direction for conventional transport in this ambulance. The paramedic says, you're going to have to kneel on the floor. I don't know if you've ever been in an ambulance, but you look at those floors, it's heavily corrugated steel. I'm thinking about my summer pants. <laughs> I says to the guy, he says, not without a pillow. <clears throat> he says to his partner, give the pussy a pillow. <laughs> I says, don't fuck with me or I'll move my fingers. 
We get into the ambulance. They dial into the county hospital. They're doing with their fancy telemetry and they're getting directions from the doctor. He's trying valiantly to start an IV. This young man has lost a lot of blood. He's unconscious now and he's trying to start an IV. And the crowd now is gathered around the ambulance and they start pounding on the side of the ambulance. What you doing? Ain't you gonna go? Ain't you gonna help him? Go, 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 go. And they're pounding on the side of the ambulance. Little sliding door at the end, a blue and white hat appears and he says, guys, you gotta move. They're, they're getting restless. The paramedic mutters under his breath, shit. Jumps into the driver's seat. We drove a few blocks to the far side of the parking lot at the Chicago Stadium. He stopped there, he notified the hospital he was trying to start an IV. The IV says, negative, stat, move him now, get him here. He mutters under his breath, if I can just get this IV started, if we don't get this IV, we're gonna lose him. So he worked around, and it was literally just five more seconds, and he says, I got it. Taped the IV down to the guy's arm, and off we went to County Hospital. Snaked our way through the corridors, up to the second floor, there's a room up there that was simply called Ward 32. It was their trauma unit. Probably the most advanced trauma unit in the history of the world. This is 1975. They describe his vital signs. The doctors look at me and he says, is that where your hand is now? And I says, yeah. He says, don't move your hand. I'm, okay. <clears throat> I, I, I've been told that before I was thinking to myself, but uh, I, I stood there and I watched one of the most miraculous performances, almost choreographed like a ballet. Uh, at any given moment, there were six or eight people working on this young man. They were calling out his blood pressure with a single figure, not the normal double figures we hear. It would be like 80. And then a few minutes later, 75. He had no breath sounds in his right lung. They were assuming that internal bleeding had drained down into the pleural cavity and collapsed his lung. So they put a tap into his chest. And I'm right there, I had to move so they could get this tap into his chest. An encouraging sign when they, when they pushed this into his chest without any anesthetic was he moaned. I thought, well, he's, he's still alive. The tube immediately filled with a gush of blood. And there was a shout, clamp it, clamp it. They couldn't afford for all this blood to escape from his cavity because he would now bleed to death internally. It was a balancing act, and this went on for quite some time. And finally, they got to the point where they came up and started paying attention to me and my hand, and they said, when we tell you, take your hand away and step straight back out of the way. So I turned I saw I had a clear path behind me, and they started unwrapping and cutting away blood-soaked ace bandages. And when it got to where they just my hand and his neck, they told me, now. I stepped away, never looked back. I knew from their talk that they were, had a vascular surgery team assembled, and he was going to be heading up to the OR for vascular surgery. I went to the back of the trauma unit, and there was a wash station back there. And they had, in those days, they had these hexachlorophene impregnated sponges. So I'm scrubbing with the hexachlorophene impregnated sponge. And suddenly, my partner shows up at my side. Where's that four-inch compress I sent you for? 
He says, go fuck yourself. <laughs> he says, can we go now, doctor? <clears throat> we laughed. The trauma unit people kind of looked at the back of the room like, what kind of macabre assholes are these? Yeah. So I says, do we have any idea who this guy is? And my partner says, I know who he is. His name is Larry Wiggins, and he lives in the Henry Horner Homes, and we're looking for Pookie. I says, well, I'm glad you did something while I was tied up. I says, let's go back to the station. I said, I want to get, it was near the end of our tour of duty. I said, I want to go home. I, I know I had blood on my shirt, and I was sure that there was blood on my trousers. I said, I'm going to go home and throw in a load of laundry and take a shower. And I says, I will pick up on this case tomorrow, because Larry was still alive. We came back to work the next day. Larry was in intensive care uh, in uh, extremely critical condition. That's about the, the most serious condition you can get. We tried poking around to find Pookie, but one of the things we discovered, well, we knew this in advance, there was about four dozen Pookies uh, uh, in every housing project on the west side. So we had to delineate, was a west side Pookie or a south side Pookie, uh, but we weren't getting anywhere. Second night we came back and his condition had improved. It was now critical, not extremely critical. So. Larry kind of dropped down the priority list because, simply because he was alive. Uh, we were homicide. We investigated murders. Uh, and Larry was improving. The third day we came back uh, on the afternoon shift at 4.30 and our boss told us that Larry had died that morning. He had suffered a stroke, apparently from a blood clot from the site of the original stab wound. So. Larry Wiggins jumped up to the top of our priority list. He was now a homicide victim. Right after roll call, we went over to the Henry Horner homes, and this time we went right up to the apartment where Larry lived with his sisters and his mother. We knocked on the door, we were admitted. It was a quiet, somber atmosphere. And the one sister, I learned later it was Larry's younger sister, leaned over to her, his mother, her mother, and said, Mama, this is the detective I told you about. She took about three steps forward and grabbed me in a bear hug. She says, sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus, you saved my baby, you saved my baby. She's got me in a bear hug. And I think, good Lord, doesn't she know? She's got to know. Her boy's been dead for about 12 hours. So I hugged her back. And I put my mouth close to her ear. I says, Mrs. Wiggins, I says, Larry died this morning. And she took a step back and looked at me and took both of my elbows in her hand. She says, Jesus put you there so we could say goodbye to him. You gave us that chance. Don't you understand? You gave us a chance to tell him we loved him and say goodbye. There was a moment of embarrassed silence. I didn't know what to say. My partner, after a moment, says, we're looking for Pookie. <clears throat> she straightened up, strong, black matriarch that I've seen so often in the ghetto. She says, we know Pookie. We'll bring him to you. I says, Mrs. Wiggins, I says, that's our job. We don't want 
you to get hurt, and we don't want Pookie to get hurt. And she looked at me rather indulgently, and she said, we bring him to you. She says, nothing bad going to happen. We had no choice. We went back to our station, and sure enough, about an hour later, Mama shows up with Pookie's Mama and Pookie. <laughs> Pookie was a big guy, about 18, 19 years old also, but he looked kind of meek and bedraggled uh, with his mama. They also brought two witnesses. So we took witnesses' statement. Pookie told us everything that happened. We called the state's attorney. We got approved for murder charges. After everything was said and done, several hours later, Mama, Pookie's Mama, and the sisters walked out. I watched them from the second floor as they walked across the street to the, where their car was parked. I never saw two more resolute moms arm in arm as they marched back to their car. Strong, stalwart. In a real sense, they had both lost a son to ghetto violence. I should have felt good about it because we had a homicide investigation, we had an arrest, we had a clear up. And that was always our goal. But the victory to me was hollow because I hadn't really saved anybody. Thank you. So we wake up in the morning, we get dressed, we put our shoes on, we head out into the world, pretty sure we're going to come back at night, get undressed, take our shoes off, go to bed, and we plan on getting up the next day and doing the same thing. And we hope, we plan, that becomes this framework, kind of a... Um, it helps us uh, in our life. And we make our plans based on the idea that we're going to be able to come home and continue to do what we've been doing. And John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. And I woke up one morning. I wasn't wearing any of my own clothes. I had a tube up my nose going down into my stomach to drain it. I had a tube uh, coming out of each side to drain each lung had a morphine drip and a catheter and a um, life support machine beeping next to me. At the foot of my bed was a surgeon who had worked on me all night to save my life, and next to him were two homicide detectives. Now, for the record, when your day starts out with two homicide detectives telling you what happened to you last night, it's gonna be downhill from there. It turns out that there's a gang in Brooklyn that had, as part of an initiation, three guys came into the village, and to move up into the upper echelon of the gang, uh, these guys had to kill somebody that night. So they sat waiting on uh, Thompson Street for a guy to come around the corner. They had a lookout at either end of the block. Lookouts gave the go-ahead. It was uh, the night before Thanksgiving, so the streets were very deserted. And this guy is walking down the block. He gets his keys out of his pocket. These three guys are coming towards him. He puts the keys into the lobby of his building. 
the lobby door. He goes in, the door closes behind him, he pushes the elevator button, and these guys are locked out. He gets in the elevator, goes up to his apartment, takes his clothes off, goes to bed, has no idea what just didn't hit him. I'm the next guy. So I'm walking down the block, I don't have, I don't live there. And these kids jump on me, and there's three. They have their knives, they're out, they're up their arm like that. I had no, did not see it coming, there were no words exchanged. They just pounced on me and began to stab me. Took one in the neck, uh, the other one went up uh, my side, cut my heart, <clears throat> both lungs were collapsed. Now, I grew up in Wyoming, learned how to fight. Then I went to school at uh, Notre Dame, I was on the boxing team, which is one of the very lucky things that saved my life that night is I got one very good straight right punch and knocked the middle guy out. And then I started to scream and ran down the block. And the police caught the middle guy because everyone else ran and left him, they couldn't carry him. And then they told him that he was gonna get the electric chair if he didn't give everyone up. Uh, he gave up all the names. And so these two homicide detectives had uh, mug shots. And the surgeon had told them that I had about a 2% chance of living through the day. And they wanted me to identify these guys before I died. Now, nobody told me that I only had a 2% chance, and um, I didn't really understand why these guys were bugging me to identify these people, and I, I felt very bad, and I didn't, I, too queasy, and I just said, I can't really put anything together from last night, and I don't want to make a wrong identification, so, um, you know, uh, you'll have to do something else with fingerprints or something, because I, I don't feel good making this identification. And um, so I spent the next three or four days on life support and um, I, I beat the odds. And uh, I come off life support and I go into the intensive care unit and the little nurse comes in and she's got the clipboard and she says, I'd like to talk to you about your insurance. And I was self-employed at the time, so I like to say I was insurance free. And um, <laughs> she uh, was dismayed to learn that. And the next morning they came in and told me, um, man, you are looking really good. We think you should um, get better at home. And they pulled all the tubes out and they gave me a little jar of Percocet and a cane and I ended up uh, at home. Now, I had a few hundred stitches from surgery. I had uh, multiple stab wounds. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't lay on my back, I couldn't lay on my side, I couldn't lay on my stomach. And every time I started to doze off, the movie would start and I just was just engulfed in terror. So the days and the weeks went by without, uh, you know, my stitches came out, but I just was not getting very much better. And, you know, in New York, if you can't go to your job and uh, pay your rent, you don't get to stay in your apartment. So, <clears throat> I was getting calls from the district attorney's office to help him with this case. I have now five guys to go to jail for uh, attempted murder. And I would go down to visit him and it would be a very emotional time for me because I didn't like to walk outside. And yet, then there were moments like I'd be walking past the deli and I would see all the flowers and the buckets and it would, it would be like uh, out of a Disney movie where all the flowers would start to sing and I was, so happy to be alive and I was just like I would feel things and and hear sounds and watch just details everything I was just picking it all up like I'd just gotten a fresh start at everything 
And yet, the rest of my life was just shit. And I would just alternate between this, like, these intense moments where, like, the essence of existence was just erupting around me. And then I would just be crying because I would see two Puerto Rican kids and any kid that looked like he had a hint of menace, which they all do, every kid, every teenager is like projecting menace, and I would, I would lose it. And, and the feeling was like, you know, if you're driving late at night on a, on a road and it's uh, snowing and the road's icy and there's, it's late, you're going a little fast, you're coming into a turn and you feel all the wheels start to slip. And you look, you see the guardrail and you're like, there's nothing I can do brake steering I, I, I'm, I'm gonna hit and then you hit the dry pavement and the car shutters and you have control again and you keep going and then you feel it the taste in your mouth and behind your knees I would get that feeling eight and ten times a day when I left my apartment and I was just unraveling coming apart and I end up getting evicted I come home and the marshals have put um, all of my possessions on the sidewalk and the homeless guys are picking through and I, I got nothing. I have nowhere to go. And uh, I have a, a, an appointment with the district attorney. So I go to him and I just break down. I start to cry and I'm like, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to have any phone anymore. Um, uh, and he says, well, let me give you the number for victims assistance. A little late, I thought. Um, <laughs> And so I take the number and I go to the victim's assistance office, just walked there, and uh, there I'm waiting. I don't have an appointment or anything. I just figure I'll wait till somebody talks to me. And this very nice young girl comes out. Like She looked just like uh, Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde. She's got the ponytail and the black turtleneck and the clipboard. And I'm in a very dark place. And I see her and I feel like we're not going to connect. And she takes me back to her cubicle, and then I know we're not going to connect, because on the wall next to her monitor is the poster, I know you know it, of the kitten and the branch. It says, hang in there, baby. <laughs> and so I just sit there kind of looking at her, and she gives me a list of places that I can go for um, free group counseling in the Bronx, and she puts me on a list for subsidized housing, which will possibly in 18 months, uh, you know, give me something. And then I can fill out Medicaid, and she gives me this middle envelope full of all these forms, and I feel like I'm a drowning man who has just been thrown a kit to build a boat. And I walk out of there with all this paperwork, and I go to see this bartender that I knew, this very cute um, Lebanese-Canadian poet bartender. She's rocking this Simone de Beauvoir look, and she's just super smart and funny, and she listens. And I just uh, say I'm, I'm homeless, you know, and uh, so she lets me stay on her couch. And the, the thing about her that was just incredible was that she listened. And I found that when I tried to talk to people about this turmoil in my head and, and how my life was, I, was just unraveling, people generally had one of three responses. Um, the first response was, everything happens for a reason. And that made me want to stab them six times and see if they knew what the reason for that was. <laughs> and the next thing that people said was, you've just got to pull yourself together and put that behind you. You're, gonna, you're, you're fine now. Just move on. Like, you can't dwell on the past. And I just wanted to punch them in the face and just keep punching them and, and just say, 
So are, are you able to just, you know, move on? Like, I, I really could use some advice from somebody who knows what they're talking about, not somebody just dishing out these platitudes. And then the next thing that people said, and again, everyone, they meant well. They just had no fucking idea what to say. And instead of saying nothing and listening, they said, um, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And the problem with that for me was that I actually did not believe that. I mean, I went to college, you know, I sat up all night in the student union um, drinking coffee. Uh, I read Nietzsche. I just had this feeling that things could happen in your life that would break you, that you would not recover from, that, that not only would you not be stronger, that I was never going to have what I had. My, my health was shot, my business was gone, my, my apartment, like I had nothing, and, and not, not only would I never even be stronger, I just wouldn't even have ever again what I had. And so I'm, you know, this is making me sad and, and then kind of mad because it just seems like nothing is working out. And I would take my little bag of tools that I had. I, uh, before I got hurt, I had this small furniture shop in Dumbo. I had built uh, custom furniture. So I still had a bag of chisels. And I would go up to the Upper East Side with my screw gun and my, my chisels. And, you know, if you're... Um, you have your own tools and English is your first language and you knock on the door of a construction site, pretty much uh, you can have a job for the day and I knew what I was doing and so pretty soon they'd say like, you know, put him down in the basement on the baseboard and see how he's going and then, you know, I'm working on some millionaire's townhouse, uh, you know, with just incredible stuff going on, marble and, and rosewood everywhere and I'm in this library and I'm, you know, mortising an offset pivot hinge into this uh, inlaid door and the thought of like this beauty and this like craftsmanship and what these people are going to be able to live in and like the just the beauty of, of what we were creating in uh, on the job site contrasted with my life and then like the evil that had happened to me and I just started to cry so there I'm, I'm on my hands and knees crying and you know one of the Mexican laborers is like goes to the foreman he's like that dude you hired man he's crying in the basement. <laughs> so the you know the foreman's this Irish guy and he comes down and he's like you know Eddie here you can't use you anymore today here's go have a drink man and you know paid me through the day and I just go and I'm sitting on a bench at, near Central Park and I'm just feeling like you know my girlfriend's worried about me because I've gone from being the sad guy to being the mad guy and I'm like verging on being this bad guy because I just am so dark all the time. And I see this dude go walking by with his shiny briefcase and his shiny shoes and his perfect suit and his silk tie knotted and his hair's all shined and combed and perfect. And I just think, I'm gonna tackle that fucker and kneel on his chest and just punch him in the face and make him hurt and just say to him, you think that you're where you are because you're good, but you're not. You're just, you're, you're where you are because you're lucky, man. A car could jump the curb. Some fuckers could stab you at night. Like, you are lucky. You're not good. You didn't get where you are because you're so fucking smart or talented. Just you didn't get hit. 
That's why you're here. And I want you to remember that. And I just wanted to hit this guy so bad. And I'm thinking, better not do that. And I let him, I let him keep walking. And then, I, and then what hits me is, I just wanted to hurt a perfect stranger to make a point about what's wrong with my life. And in that moment, I realized I have just become closer to the guys who stabbed me than I am to who I was before I was hurt. And I see there's this path for me where I'll join those guys on the road to fucking hell. I'll be alone, I'll be in prison, I'll do whatever I want to do, and I'll end up like them. And I don't want to do that. I have enough wherewithal to not want to do that. And the next thing that occurs to me is that I can't ever have what I had before. It's gone. That guy, I can't, I can't get back to that. I'm different. I'm fundamentally and totally changed. And I need to, I need to do something that I've never done before. And then I think, I've got this girl and she's like, I'll, I'll just go tell her, like, I'm gonna be different now. I, I, I put all this other crap aside. I'm gonna start again. I'm gonna have this like energy and I'm totally psyched and I go running home to her and I'm like, I'm gonna be different. Things are gonna be great. Will you marry me? And she's like, no. <laughs> and so she, um, sh but she's enthused by my enthusiasm and she gives me, you know, she waits, and so we, we, we try and work it out. And a couple of years goes by, and um, she knows I'm never gonna ask her again, so she asks me, and I agree. And then a little more time goes by, and we, we kind of get a, a routine back, and I get a better job, and start doing things again, and, and kind of put the world back into some kind of perspective where I don't really trust the world again, but at least I have it at arm's length. And we decide we can have a kid. So I have a, a, a four-year-old daughter now. So I put her shoes on in the morning and I head out to work. Well, that is all for this, the best of risk true crime stories. Number one, we just heard from Ed Gavigan. And before Ed, we heard from the late Jim Padar. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.